0: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. This week, SpyCast would like to thank the podcast Hackable from McAfee for their support. You'll hear more about this later, but first, let's meet our guest. So we are joined today again by Greg Elder, the Chief Historian for the Defense Intelligence Agency. This is part two of SpyCast's regular conversations with DIA, again, how frequently we're still figuring out, but you'll hear from Greg and eventually others from DIA discussing their key role in providing intelligence for decision makers at the Pentagon, on the battlefield, and in Washington. You can check out our first conversation from June 13th of this year, the same place you're listening to this podcast. So welcome back, Greg. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here again at SpyCast. Thanks. Appreciate it. So we spoke the last time about DIA's role in missions and events that occurred during the Cold War, but we essentially circled around the Soviets, kind of really focused on the periphery. So today, let's center much of our conversation on the Soviet Union. And I'd like to tackle this topic more thematically versus chronologically, kind of pick up big themes and take some chunks out of it, really starting with nuclear, nuclear doctrine. I almost pulled a George W. there, nuclear, nuclear doctrine, uh, because I, again, that is kind of the foundation of this Cold War uh, standoff between the U.S. and the Soviets, is kind of this nuclear policy. So you can talk a little bit about how DIA played a role in some of the bigger conversations that we had during the Cold War, of like, what is our nuclear stance? How are we actually going to fight World War III if it ended up happening?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I was at your museum uh, with my son last week. Fantastic! It was a great experience. And I was watching one of your videos, and it talked about how about the Cold War specifically, and and how how huge it was in terms of of literally essentially saving. We we were literally at the at the point of destroying the entire world, and all of the intelligence and the efforts that went behind actually keeping us out of war, keeping us at parity with the Soviets, um, was enormous. It was it was. By far and large, by far, far and large, the um, the largest part of DI's effort during the entire Cold War was dedicated to the Soviet Union. Even though, for instance, in our last discussion, we spoke so much about kind of the periphery uh, operation, and operations include explosives and their shooting and things like that. By and large, for the for the actual Soviet effort in the Cold War, of course, we're not talking about actual explosions. We're we're trying to prevent. Um, actually going to war with them, and that included a lot more effort than I think most people may may realize and nuclear doctrine is certainly certainly one of them. Uh, you know when the Soviet Union first got uh, nuclear weapons, um, we had virtually no collection on the Soviet Union to be able to actually keep keep track of what they were doing and how well they were doing, how they were advancing. Uh, you know it's interesting the, the last time we discussed the missile and bomber gap and during the 1950s and early early 60s. And here's a period where we have absolutely no clue how many bombers they have. we have no, absolutely no clue how many missiles that they have. Uh, and that's largely because you know, the lack of satellites, First satellite goes up, and, and and you're really talking, you know, again early sixties, before you actually get enough satellites to be able to provide any real coverage. And what's more, not just coverage, you're not just talking about coverage, you're talking about capability as right. well, right? So, coverage and capability on the Soviet Union, you, you know, you're, that's a, that's a sizable time thereafter. Uh, humant is not timely necessarily, so you may have somebody in the Soviet Union, a really good spy. Who is collecting information uh, and providing it back to us? But sometimes that's a month, it's two months, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, the newspapers certainly aren't going to help us. The Soviet newspapers certainly aren't going to help us, except for uh, you know, propaganda. So for the early part of the Cold War, there's a real gap in terms of the Soviets' true ability to hit the United States with nuclear weapons. And, and, and of course, there's there's periods of time where we think the Soviets are actually uh, actually have an advantage over us. And so, our basic doctrine and nuclear policy in the in the early years of the Cold War, really until the late 1970s, uh, becomes one of essentially mutually assured destruction, which is um, we have no warning capability to see when they're actually going to do anything. We have very little visibility over over truly how many missiles that they have, uh, and 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 so we have to always be standing by, ready to be able to retaliate in full. And essentially, the effect is we want to deter them, right? Because we don't know what they're doing, what their intent is, when they're going to actually do something. We're hoping to deter them and say, if you fire off a single nuclear weapon, um, then we're going to both both sides launch everything, and we're going to destroy each other's um, countries. Of course, the problem with that is, is how, do you, how do you deal with, with contingencies? So if the Soviets launch a massive ground attack into Germany, and use several tactical nuclear weapons. Is that going to precipitate a full mutually assured destruction attack against them? Uh, suppose the Soviets allow uh, uh, Vietnam, you know, in the Vietnam War, as all these peripheral wars are happening, and they use a tactical nuclear weapon there. Or Cuba decides to use, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, a nuclear weapon. These contingency things. Or if, if the Soviet Union launches a few nuclear weapons at, for instance, Britain. All of these different things leads you to to question, you know, are are we really going to destroy the entire world um, based on these early contingency type of operations that may not include large-scale use of nuclear weapons? And so, you know, even as early as 1960, some theorists out there like Herman Kahn were already talking about um you've got to break out of this you've got to think about a way of getting outside the box and understanding that you can escalate in nuclear warfare just as you can in regular warfare and he actually had 44 rungs of escalation now the problem with herman kahn at that time is several problems well several problems with with herman Herman (laughs) kahn of course the funny thing is herman (laughs) kahn is is dr strangelove in the movie um is is you have to have the intelligence to be able to do that. Right. So, so going back to that entire thing of, yeah, sure, we would love to be able to develop an escalatory policy, but we just it's, it's very difficult if you don't have the intelligence and you don't have a clear picture of what the uh, adversary's intent is to do that. And so it took quite a while to be able to get to that space. But by, by the mid-1970s, um, it, it becomes clear now we have more and more collection capability we now have the ability to determine much more accurately how many missiles the Soviets have, what their their capability is, such as their circular error of probability, which is to say uh, you know, early in the Cold War the Soviets thought that they would be lucky to be able to even hit within 20 miles of a target in the United States. So, so they're looking at even being able to get close enough to hit a city, let alone hitting a reinforced hardened silo right. with the precision necessarily necessary to be able to knock it out. So in the 1970s, we start. We start. Dia um, starts uh, developing and getting the capability to actually have a much finer uh, perspective on Soviet capabilities, uh, where they're putting their missiles, how good they are, what their command and control situation is, uh, all the way to their underground facilities. So that you know, are they trying to survive a nuclear war? We have a much better perspective by the 1970s, and so. When Carter comes into office and he says we really need to rethink our entire nuclear policy, DIA is putting together reports and going and saying all of what I just said. We just have, we have a lot more information to be able to go on right now, and we can develop targeting packages that allow for escalation where we don't have to, to rely on a full, wide-scale nuclear war. Um, we can hit their industrial industrial sites. We can hit... Uh, you know one of the, the the things I find is interesting in the early 1970s the Soviet Soviet leaders started building a number of really hardened uh, command and control bunkers outside of Moscow and we were putting together analysis at that time saying uh, really it looks like Soviet leaders have the intent of, actually establishing a war-winning policy with nuclear war. They think that they can win. And if the leaders can go find themselves in a bunker somewhere, this is kind of the humor of, of Dr. Strangelove right. at the end of the mineshaft gap, right? But but this is really happening. They're actually developing these hardened hardened underground facilities, and and if they think they can win a war, well, that changes the, the, the mindset that they have and that we have to have in relationship to that. So things like targeting underground facilities uh, becomes a big deal. In fact, when we put together one of the studies on this, the National Security Council came to DI and said, we would really like you to, to develop a little bit more reporting and put out a finished product on their underground facilities and their mindset of wanting to win a war. And what we want to be able to do is go p- kind of public with that. So we, we, we completed a report, we gave it to them. They actually were disseminating information at the unclassified level that they knew would get to the Soviets that would clearly indicate to the Soviets like your hardened your hardened facilities outside of Moscow are not going to be right. um, free from targeting. in fact, they're probably going to be among the first the first targets, so that we could start setting that that line in the sand in terms of you can't win a nuclear war with us, um, but then internally saying we are also not going to go immediately full guns and destroy the entire world, we're going to develop specific target packages that say we can limit, hopefully, an initial nuclear exchange and not destroy the world.
0: Well, I think students of diplomatic history may have read you know, some of the titans in the field and understand how nuclear strategy shifted from massive retaliation during Eisenhower to flexible response to kind of more counterforce strategy. Where you're just trying to hit their silos and their nuclear capability, and not realize, or at least think that it had to do with personalities of new presidents and new people in charge, and not realize the engine behind a lot of this was actually how much we knew, and how much we understood about the Soviet threat versus oh Kennedy just thought differently than Eisenhower, you know all that. It, 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 there's a that certainly plays a role, but as you're telling us now. Intelligence and the ability to understand the threat was a key driver in these, these strategic changes. Right.
1: If, if the first time you know that you're about ready to get hit with nuclear missiles is just before, is, is, is when they've already crossed the poles, mm-hmm. and you've got about 10 minutes left and it's a full nuclear exchange, clearly your intelligence is not working. Yeah. And so you have to prepare. You have to prepare for that being the major contingencies. We have to prepare our nuclear doctrine that the President of the United States is going to have 10 minutes or less to make a decision to retaliate, and we have to expect that 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 they're going to use their full nuclear force against us. That's the early period. Then, like I said, as we started getting more intelligence, you start saying, um, okay, well, we have visibility into some of their command and control. We have some visibility into where their missiles are and how much time that we have. We also get more visibility into their doctrine so that we find out their doctrine is not necessarily initially mutually assured destruction. In fact, the Soviets had a more flexible uh, perspective on nuclear weapons well before we did, but you don't find that stuff out if you don't dedicate intelligence to it and technology also. So it's not just the intelligence, but the technology that goes against intelligence that allows you to start getting that capability. So uh, U you two, know, we lose the U two uh, over over Russia, um, and that was. You know, a real principal form of collection for us in the early years of the Cold War against the Soviet Union. Well, you can only do limited flights. You know, it's not full coverage, um, limited satellite coverage. But now, all of a sudden, when you start talking about us putting more and more satellites up with more and more capability that um, that can do more and more things, then whereas in the, when we had the missile gap, where we didn't even know the the Air Force perspective then is well, because we can't see the entire country, we have to assume there's missiles everywhere. Right. I. That's, that's one way of actually looking at it, because if you don't have the coverage and if you hear the Soviets saying, you know, comrades, we are building large numbers of nuclear weapons to destroy your country. Uh, and you go, okay, OK, well, we can't see their country, so we're going to go on that. It's not till later that you're actually able to go do more research, do more analysis and find that those missiles just don't exist. So, so it's the technology driven also by, by need uh, of intelligence, and then so by 1983, Secretary of Defense Casper Weinberger develops a whole new nuclear policy, flexible response, and that's really a large part because DIA was the lead for nuclear targeting during this entire period of time uh, throughout the 70s and 80s. DIA is the one providing all the targeting information and such, so DIA is really really becomes instrumental in developing and assisting in changing. What let's face it, a doctrine that really, if there had been a nuclear war, you know, really would have meant essentially at the end of the world, um, or certainly a large part right. of it, to to um, to something far far different. And it, it, it kind of is interesting as time goes on too. Uh, even even something like the uh, um, the uh, the uh, where all the debris goes up in the atmosphere. And nuclear the, winter. Nu- uh, sorry, nuclear yeah, nuclear winter. winter. Yeah. So nuclear winter, the DOD. Um, actually, put out an agreement that, or a statement that that the Department of Defense agrees that if there's a nuclear war um, at the scale and size that we're talking about, there's going to be a nuclear winter. And that was a really big deal to come out and say, like, okay, even if you live in Africa or whatever, the change in the atmosphere, the change in the entire global system, if there's a major nuclear war, is essentially going to kill everything. Right. Well, the the policy of appreciating and agreeing with the fact there's going to be a nuclear winter was based on U.S. or I mean on DIA development of analy- uh, and completion of analysis on Soviet capabilities, and we said if the Soviets begin a nuclear war, they're going to fire you know 1,500 nuclear nuclear weapons at us. By this time, they're probably going to be MIRVed. so you're talking about even a much larger number of actually nuclear warheads hitting us. So there's going to be this nuclear winter. That really drove a lot of the push. For the INF treaty, which which i 'll talk about here in a few minutes, but was was enormous in reducing um, not only numbers of nuclear weapons but also kind of the policies behind the, how they would be used as well so so dia 's nuclear policy uh, assistance in that with intelligence proved to be really important and you so this, this 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 is the type of stuff that in history goes by the wayside because it didn't involve people dying well actually I will tell you there were people dying they were there were spies dying right. there were there were you know it was really a, a nasty period but it, it, it doesn't fit in movies very well and those types of things because you're not talking about you know tanks being moved right. from here to here yeah. or whatever um, but but when you think about the actual impact of in global global history, of what had happened had had this analysis not been there, what had happened if the wrong decision, if the decision maker made a wrong decision based on wrong information because their intelligence wasn't there? Uh, it's it's really a pretty pretty big deal.
0: Well, let me let me shift to something tangential to this, but still important because what many people may not think about is the impact of not military technology but civilian technology on things like the nuclear arms race and the DIA provided a vital role in intelligence support looking at tech transfer. you know The Soviets were behind the United States and the West and a lot of what we consider commercial technologies, a lot of mainstream technologies. I mean, computer technology is a great example of this. You know, the 1980s uh, it was night and day. They were decades behind. But that doesn't mean the Soviets can't get their hands on it. They meant to be developing themselves and for making an adequate or accurate assessment of Soviet capabilities, you need to know what's going back and forth. And can you talk a little bit about the importance of that and then somehow where the DIAs played a role in this?
1: Right. You know, one real unique thing about the United States is so much of our military capability is actually designed by private industry, of course. Uh, And we take a lot of the upgrades and things that we get from private industry. We take commercial off-the-shelf materials, and we translate that into improvements for military capability. And so when our adversaries look at us, they're not just looking at our military. Of course, they're looking at our private sector uh, in terms of commercial off-the-shelf stuff, in terms of the military capabilities being developed by our our defense firms. It's no strange thing that the MiG-29 looks – you know, almost identical to the F-14 and the F-15. And as, as we've made advances, you see those advances clearly happening with our adversaries as well. And a large part of that is the level of effort that, in this case, the Soviet Union put toward stealing not just our military secrets, but also um, stealing commercial secrets and trying to procure, through all sorts of different legitimate and illegitimate methods, uh, technology that they couldn't develop um, themselves.
0: You know, you procure, you're not buying it from companies, right. right? This isn't sneaky spy stuff. This is saying, right. hey, we've got a lot of money, we want to buy stuff. And in some cases, it, was, it wasn't it was like, let's buy a tank from General Atomics, right? Let's get an M1 as it rolls off. These are things like ball bearings. And, and if you saw them on a paper and you didn't really understand what was going on, you'd be like, yeah, sure. Who cares if the Soviets can buy ball bearings? What can you do with ball bearings?
1: Yeah, the ball bearing story is actually pretty funny because it's, it's one of those situations. The intelligence community gets hit a lot when we're wrong. Um, but the ball bearing situation in the 1970s, 60s and 70s, is actually a funny story because it's what happens sometimes if you don't listen to intelligence. So in the 1960s, the Soviet Union tried to procure what's called the Centaline B grinder, which was which produced really high precision ball bearings. I mean these are these are ball bearings that are so perfect, uh, minuscule ball bearings that are so perfect that they use them for really advanced optical. They're only used for advanced optical lenses and really really super advanced um, military capabilities like precision guidance systems. So in 1960, the Soviets tried to openly procure a bunch of ball-bearing technology, a bunch of these machines. And, and incidentally, the only, the only corporation in the, United, in the world that could produce this stuff was in the United States at the advanced level that was needed. Well, DOD vigorously opposed this. So this is right before D, DIA was established in 1960, but DOD vigorously opposed it. A Senate subcommittee looked at it and said, yeah, this is, this is bad news. We do not want to sell them this because what are you going to use them for except advancing your military capability substantially? Well, several years go by, there's, there's changes in policy toward the Soviet Union where we're trying to de-escalate, um, trying to make detente efforts, smooth things out, and the issue comes up again. The Soviet Union once again makes an effort to go buy a whole bunch of these Centeline B uh, machines. Well, by this point in time, now, DI was established, and DI actually led uh, a lot of the efforts to try to mitigate the sale of, of these type of advanced commercial capabilities to the Soviet Union and other nations that wanted capabilities that would hurt us. And we warned uh, the, the, the National Security Council and, quite frankly, anybody who would listen about the danger of of selling these minuscule ball bearings to, to the Soviet Union. We said it has the potential of actually rendering all of our missiles and our silos vulnerable because it will take, again, like I mentioned earlier, that circular error of probability – and it will minimize it to such a degree that our hardened silos now become vulnerable. So now you don't have to, as the Soviet Union, try and drop a, uh, a 15 megaton bomb that is so big that, that it's, it's going to destroy everything around, but, but still is not accurate enough that it might, even still, it's still not, it might even destroy the silo. But now, with even far more tactical-type nuclear weapons, um, are so accurate that they're able to almost hit our silos and destroy them. So we said, really, this is a bad idea. Well, the Soviets came back and they said, well, you know, this this is really just for trucks. We want to use these ball bearings for the production of commercial vehicles. Well, I mean, look, they see a Russian car. You know, I, I, this is like this is like getting a Stradivarius, whatever, violin for your kid, an eighty thousand yeah. dollar violin for your kid to learn how to use a violin. That you're going to use a precision ball bearing from one of these machines for a truck, right? It's ridiculous. Uh, but such was the political impetus at the time to try and improve relations with the Soviet Union that we ended up selling them, 164 of these, these machines, for a cost of 20, $20 million. Right, $20 million. Okay, $20 million. All right. 1976. So that was in 1972 we made the sale. In 1976, DIA is going before House Subcommittee, and by that time we're already telling them that we see some significant improvements in the, the Russian uh, ability to to improve their targeting capability across the board, so not just with nuclear weapons, but across the board in their weapon systems. And we started really seeing it happen in their SS18s. Now SS18 is kind of a unique weapon. It, it's a transition from a single warhead, kind of kind of sluggish, large right. missile, to a very advanced, long range. A missile system that actually has ten warheads on it. It can either carry ten warheads or it can carry a large, like twenty-five megaton nuclear bomb. Twenty-five megatons will destroy New York. So, I mean, the entire city of New York by itself, and most of New Jersey, and most and, of and yeah. a lot of everything yeah. else around there, right? Um, and we saw that these SS-18s um, were getting more and more accurate, and and this was all coming. and We knew this, right? So this was all coming out of the fact that we had sold them. This minuscule ball bearing technology That they were improving their guidance systems. Well now we understood, the United States government understood That it really did render A lot of our nuclear forces vulnerable To a first strike So what did we do? Uh, we had to develop a whole new Weapon system That was able to maneuver And move in such a way That that SS-18s the Soviet Union Wouldn't be able to capture um, The large part of our uh, ICBM forces in their silos So we said, wow MX missile. Let's do that. The Peacekeeper, X, yeah. right? The LGM one eighteen A Peacekeeper, uh, which came with a total budgeted cost. In the end, we spent about twenty billion dollars on the MX missile system. So, for you know, you balance that out. For twenty million dollars in sales, uh, we ended up ultimately paying twenty billion dollars uh, as a result of of that sale. And those types of things are really, really dangerous. And, well, and that's a large part of the reason that you have you know, DIA and other organizations out there who are doing this type of analysis. You you always wonder where does all this where does all the Intel money go? What is it really being used for? Well of course you don't know anything about a Centeline B grinder and its impact on precision right. guidance capabilities to destroy and render your entire silo force, you know, vulnerable unless you're actually having the experts out there go and do this type of analysis.
0: Well even even more I mean maybe you don't have to be an expert to see how incredibly well-manufactured ball bearings have particular purposes. But even look at something even more benign as air traffic control systems, right? To where you're like, what could it hurt to help them make sure their civilian air traffic is safer? You know, we have the greatest air traffic control in the world. We should share this with them so that they don't have their planes running into each other. What could go wrong? Well, what could go wrong?
1: It's yes, air traffic control. It's truly benign, truly yeah. benign. Nobody could ever use an advanced um, air traffic control system for anything negative. This was a, this was one of those situations that luckily we were on the other side of this where policymakers actually did listen. And, and, and thank goodness most time policymakers you know, try, try to do their best to make the right decisions. Uh, in one thousand nine hundred and seventy two the Soviets tried to actually purchase again here another whole set of commercial off the shelf technology in Western air traffic control system, really advanced western con- uh, air traffic control systems. The real reason they wanted to do this again was not you know just like the ball bearings to to build you know better trucks in this case or to improve the traffic control station at moscow 's international airport. it was to make advanced, really big advancements. Um, in their surface to air missile capability and their air or their, their air, uh, air defense um, throughout their country, and this technology great, would greatly improve their air defense capabilities, the command and control, the ability to be able to provide information about incoming aircraft and threats
0: yeah, I mean basically, a civilian aircraft like at Dulles or at, at Reagan Airport is essentially in the air with an AWACS system. know that you know, you know the, if you 've seen the planes with the big domes. That's essentially a flying air traffic control system. That's kind of the foundation of our control of the skies, and that's what you're seeing the Russians going after in this case.
1: Right, and and it's 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 one of those instances of commercial off-the-shelf technology again that is used that that has weapons applications that we. I mean, we we do the same thing. We look at our own commercial off-the-shelf technology and say, how can we use it? Soviets were doing that too. Well we found uh, we were leading a large science and technology um, uh, effort at the time directed at the Soviets, again, trying to mitigate these types of things. And when we saw the effort to try and sell this material to the Soviet Union, um, we went to the Department of Justice and we said, hey, we're really concerned about the sale of this material to the to the Soviet Union. We think there's really big mit- uh, military applications in this. And the Department of Justice began an investigation to see what was the actual Um, not just from the Soviet perspective, which we were providing them, but from the U.S. perspective, whether or not the commercial vendors and such knew about what was happening. Uh, It turns out that it was going to be an illicit sale. And as a result of teeing up this investigation, uh, the corporation was not only turned down in terms of the sale, but uh, ended up having to pay the single largest imposed fine in the United States to that time on a U.S. export control issue issue. Uh, and and it, w- it was a lot of money then. It was front page newspaper, uh, and we were able to stop that sale. Now, because that sale went through, we started looking and saying, where else might the Soviet Union start, look- start looking to do this? And one of our allies had a corporation too, working with the Soviet Union to try to, to try to mitigate or to try to sell that technology to the Soviets. So we developed a relationship with our partner nation. We let them know about the dangers. Of what would happen if the Soviets got that technology, and we were able to there as well mitigate the sale of that uh, an important part of this too is is you start learning the dangers of this from a policy perspective you know and and they completely changed policy as a result of this successful uh, uh, this successful effort to to break down that that sale well, we start As we were looking at that, we were finding the Soviets were also looking at other things as well. In this case, like telecommunications, simple telecommunications. Well, again, like, okay, well, phones and networks and all that, that's, that's commercial, not a big deal. But here, too, the Soviets were looking to rapidly bolster and get up to speed against the West by buying Western technology for telecommunication systems so that they could improve their command and control and principally for nuclear command and control capability. And so here's another situation where, in looking at that, we worked very hard. We were able to determine what they were doing, and we helped to mitigate that that sale. And as a result of the telecommunications f- uh, failed failed effort, uh, it, we the U.S. government developed the first set of comprehensive agreements between Western nations on 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 the level of technology that could be sold to the Soviet Union across the board, across a whole range of different. Fields, you know, aviation, right. command and control, technology, and so on. And so this turned out to be, um, during this time, a real success story in the fact that we were, we were using intelligence uh, in a way that was enabling policy. And again, remember, that's, that's what almost all is for. In intelligence, you know, you hope that you never have to go to war. What intelligence is first and foremost supposed to be to do is to tee up policymakers, keep them informed of what's happening to avoid war so that you can get them ahead of the issues that are happening. And here's a case where we were limiting the technology that was being provided to our adversaries that certainly would have improved their capabilities again, just like the the, the ball bearings – uh, and we were able to get ahead of that and actually change policy as a result. And throughout the 1980s, then, we were able to mitigate a large number of technology transfers to the Soviet Union.
0: What I think is interesting is that every time the Soviets are trying to buy a new Western technology, they're telling us what they're lagging behind technological, technologically. Essentially, they're, they're letting us know where they're having trouble with their own in-house Science and technology efforts. You know, if they have to buy it overseas, it means they know they can't produce it in house. So not only are you stopping them from getting better, but they're providing you with great information about where they are at on a particular technology as well.
1: Right. It can either be a trigger, like "Wow, we thought that they were far more advanced than this," uh, or it can be a con- uh, confirming. Yeah. So yeah, we we already knew that they were really far behind, and now this just this just goes to demonstrate that. That's absolutely absolutely right.
0: We'll have more with Greg in a moment, but have you ever wondered if you might be a target of a ransomware attack? How vulnerable are you? It's easy to get freaked out by what we see on TV every day, especially when ransomware attacks are happening around the world. We just can't unplug and hope the bad guys go away. Too much of our lives are online. Would it be helpful if there were knowledgeable people who are willing to tell us what is and isn't possible? Well, the new podcast Hackable from McAfee is out to show you. Every week, Jeff Siskin and his team of cybersecurity experts conduct in-depth experiments to uncover the truth about cyber attacks. This week, Jeff lets a hacker hijack his computer and haul all of its data, sensitive documents, and even photos of an adorable puppy for ransom. Through some unsettling feelings, encryption to bitcoins, they go through the process of what happens to a victim of ransomware attack. Sounds a little crazy, but it's all in the name of science. Look, as I've told you before, I know Spycast audience is not your normal podcast audience. It's safe to say that many of you know a whole lot about this subject. What's cool about this podcast is that it does a pretty great job working the space between being accessible to novices with little information in the field and still providing solid information for those, let's say, more well-versed in the subject. This is information that comes straight from McAfee's experts, empowering people with specific things they can do to make their digital lives more secure. Good for your grandmothers and your neighbor who works for NSA. So... How worried should we be about the threat of a possible, possible ransomware attack? Listen to Hackable, now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. As we move into the 70s and the 80s, it goes from figuring out what they're building to trying to actually decrease some of these weapons systems. We talked about INF. We'll get to that in a second. But starting in the early 1970s with like START and the SALT talks and START later on, uh, things like, you know, ABM treaties and, and NPT and all all these wonderful acronyms that focus on arms control and then later arms reduction, actual disarmament talks. The only way those work is if we know everyone is doing what they're supposed to I mean, verification, right? That's that magic word people throw around. So how much has DIA played a role in ensuring the verification of some of these arms control treaties?
1: The first part of of ensuring that they're that they're actually living up to the verifications is actually participating in the treaties themselves and d i has been a really key player uh, in arms control treaties worldwide but of course with the soviet union during during the entire cold war you know so we were we were involved with the nuclear, 1963 Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, the ABM Treaty, Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, the Biological Weapons Convention, which was a really, really big deal. Uh, and then, as you move into the 1980s, yeah, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty (INF), the Budapest Memorandum on Security Assurances. So you talk about all these things that that you. First of all, you, DI is the agent is is the agency, or at least a principal agency, in many of these negotiations going to the table. Actually, helping to provide again policymakers with the intelligence necessary so that they don't miss, make mistakes at the table like they did with the bo- minuscule ball bearing, mm-hmm. where it just sounds like a simple procedural, you know, discussion of can we buy some machines? Well, sure. If you have the right people at the table who know what's going on, then you're able to have that person whisper in your principal's ear and say that's a really bad idea. You don't. These are insanely
0: do that. complicated conversations, right? You're th- uh, people talking about throw weight and, you know time on target and MERS and all these that. These are diplomats, maybe they 're not physicists they're, you know maybe they haven 't been studying nuclear weapons for their entire careers, and then you can provide them with the backing of a DI analyst who has been studying this their entire career so,
1: so yeah like the, the 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 backfire bomber this is a fairly late, fairly advanced uh, Soviet bomber that they built, and the big question was was it internet was it intercontinental was it a long range bomber was it only a coastal bomber? And being able to have experts sit at the table uh, and be able to provide that information to be able to say we need to be wary when they say they only have you know 500 bombers that you know 500 long-range bombers. Well, does that include the backfires or not? And and are they truly? Do they truly have that capability? Uh, yeah you have to have that you have to have that capability you have to be able to say we know that the SS18 actually carries 10 warheads so don't come to the table and say that we only have a certain number of platforms and if you put one missile on one one warhead on each one well we don't have that many well yeah you multiply it times 10 because that's how many so you have to have that level of of expertise So there's that foundational intelligence that I go back to time and time again, which is the people who every day just sit and do analysis and maintain visibility on the adversaries, on what their military capabilities are, what they're doing, how many they have. That isn't seen every day. It's the type of thing that you hope that you never go to war, but when you do go to war, the information's there. It's also the information for treaties and such that you go to the senior policymakers and you already have a baseline understanding and foundation of your adversary's capability so that you don't make those mistakes uh, at the table. And then when something does happen, because you were at the table, you're much, you're, you're, you're It's much easier for you to be able to call out the adversary and say, you know, I I think that you're breaking the rules, or at least um, inform policymakers so that they can make, again, informed decisions about what's happening. So, for instance, on on the Biological Weapons Convention, we sit through that, and it's very clear both sides are supposed to eliminate all of their biological weapons. In fact, here in the United States, when Nixon... Canceled our program. He went on television and he said, "We're eliminating everything. Uh, our largest biological weapons capability was up in Frederick, Maryland, at Fort Detrick, and essentially everybody there lost their jobs. You know, it was a very public, very big deal. Uh, it was it was in the United States. It was well known that we were that we were doing, and it was very visible. In the Soviet Union, uh, they signed the document, but they never they never really." Uh, ever intended to live up to it um, they 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 maintain developing some of the most capable um, weaponized biological weapons uh, in history i mean just, just these is just terrible stuff I mean yeah we 're talking the, smallpox and smallpox. anthrax and you, you well, know. and 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 going developing developing anthrax for instance that that can 't that, that 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 survives any sort of vaccine right. So, so it's not just that you're developing, you know, an anthrax to kill everybody. You're, you're you're making sure that your adversary can't even give anybody vaccines to try, to try to stop it. So, in April in April of 1979, uh, long well, actually, long before April 1979, we had been we had been watching the Soviets and their weaponized capabilities uh, on, on biological weapons. Continuously warning policymakers, we don't think that they're living up to their uh, to their agreements. On April 2nd, 1979, suddenly there's a big outbreak of of anthrax in uh, Sverdlovsk in Russia, and the Soviets say it's just improper meat handling. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, there's there's some meat that got bad. We put it out in the stores, and a bunch of people are dying from it. You know, nothing to see here. Nothing right. to see here. Uh, and, in fact, a Soviet delegation categorically stated, you know, this incident has no bearing on the question of compliance by the USSR of the Convention on the Prohibition of Bacteriological Tox- Toxin Weapons. You know, categorically, nothing to do with this, right? And, and all these people are dying. Well, we, of course, had been watching Spare Loss for a while. We already had our concerns. When this happened, it, it started breaking the number of deaths, the widespread nature of this. By the way, when you drew a line of the wind pattern, and then you started getting information about where the anthrax cases were happening, you were able to see a clear, almost straight-lined-on-wind pattern to see, like, okay, well, if they're in stores, then why aren't there people on the southeast side of Sperdloss getting it? Why aren't people on the northwest side getting it? Why isn't only people in the northeast side of Sperdloss... Who are directly downwind. Loss, from, yeah, are, are, are getting this, right? So uh, we start hearing, first, uh, rumors um, about about a large outbreak. And then we have a number of um, Soviet emigres going to Europe, and when they come to Europe, they start talking about this. Uh, a number of Soviet Jews who went to who went to Israel came and started talking about it as well. Uh, and then more and more information starts starts coming out. Well, well, right away. I mean, right when we saw this come out, we immediately provided information, warning that the the outbreak was likely nothing to do with meat packing or anything like that it simply had none of the signatures that would indicate that it was a traditional um outbreak of of anthrax in a in a community where there's a lot of sheep or livestock or whatever it just simply didn't have those those signatures so We immediately started putting together um, products, a a defense intelligence note, a weekly intelligence summary to senior policymakers, keeping them informed of what was happening. We put out a number of intelligence reports, actual raw intelligence reports about what was happening, and we maintained um, information on this in the early 80s and well through. And and what that really did for us, too, is it triggered us to reinvigorate efforts to try to look at and, and get our arms around what was happening, because this wasn't this wasn't something where it was a third hand source you know where my somebody comes to Europe and it's my uncle's brother's third cousin right. nep- nephew nephew's daughter said that she saw a vial that looked like biological weapons being produced somewhere no this was a clear case where where all of the indicators and all the information coming out suggested that this was something more uh, than than just a standard anthrax breakout so Each time that we were able to go to the table then with the Soviets, the U.S. government was able to go to the table with the Soviets and talk about uh, arms control and verification and are you actually living up to it. This is one of those areas, again, where we're able to go to the Soviets and say, uh, it's very clear that you're not living up to your your agreements. Uh, Now, policymakers are the ones that make the decision, so what they choose to do with that information is ultimately theirs, but they were kept well informed. So then 1991 comes around, Soviet Union collapses, and in 1992, uh, a colonel from the former Soviet Union colonel, um, Colonel Kanat Alikov, I'm not a -A 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 Soviet speaker, Alibikov, anyway, comes here and he's... Ken Alibikov. Yes, Ken Alibikov, yes. Comes here and begins telling the intelligence community and DIA... Exactly about what was happening, and he had been the, the deputy director of their biopropriate, which was the organization that developed uh, and 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 actually you know put out biological weapons, and he very clearly stated everything that we had said had been had been accurate, and 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 even expanded on the number of different terrible things that the Soviets had been doing in terms of biological weapons, but essentially confirming though Dia's concerns. More than 100 people ultimately had died from that anthrax outbreak. And it's interesting that one of the key people in the Soviet Union who helped cover up that accident was actually Boris Yeltsin, who was a local Communist Party official yeah. at the time and, and did everything he could. And so when, you know, later on when we we're talking to Boris Yeltsin in arms control and everything, here's the person who had worked so hard to try to cover it up then Coming out later and still saying, "Oh, you know, we, we have nothing to do with it. Right. We have no no biological or chemical weapons," um, but but we had we had already come to terms with the fact that we were accurate on that.
0: Well, Ken Albak wrote a, a fascinating book called Biohazard. Basically, if you want to if you want to sleep well at night, don't read it. But uh, it's certainly uh, the bird, you know, first person account. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, well, and what was interesting about it was the Soviet response to all this was. Well, the Americans publicly said that they weren't doing it anymore, but we just assumed they were cheating anyway. Yeah. So if they were going to cheat, we were going to cheat. And it's a wonderful mirror imaging there of, uh, well, wonderful from hindsight and not getting killed by anthrax, mirror imaging of the Soviets are like, well, of course they're cheating. So that's what we would do, and that's what we're going to do. So they assumed, and they, they kind of self-fulfilling prophecy... Uh, was and, there a response to
1: that? And, and, and the other thing is, there were so many instances where the Soviets were cheating, and where we were actually catching them. That that type of logic, you know, working against us would have worked had they caught us cheating. You know, if you could actually come to the table and say, "Okay, all right, look, you caught us with this anthrax thing, but you know what? We caught you, you know, actually saying that you had a missile that was only supposed to go, you know, eight hundred miles, and we caught you in a test that says it was right. going, you know, three thousand miles. So therefore, you've broken that." We caught them so many times. Another example of, of of them where we were able to catch them catch them in this and be able to again continue letting policymakers know about the concerns of the Soviets cheating on their arms control uh, was the Cosmos nine fifty four. Uh, this was a RORSAT satellite. It's a radar ocean reconnaissance satellite that the Soviet Union put up in early nineteen seventy seven, and it it immediately was off track when it launched. It started going out of orbit, and uh, we had found out that it was actually a nuclear satellite, which was breaking the rules at the time. You're not supposed to put satellites into space that carry 100 pounds of highly enriched uranium as well as plutonium, cesium, strontium, all sorts of other fun stuff that, by the way, if this thing ever crash lands, it's going to cause – it has the potential to cause a real nuclear type of disaster. So they, some satellites crash, right? So that's why we don't put yes. <laughs> we don't put an anthrax in them yeah. either, right? And so, so they had put up this this nuclear this nuclear satellite, and it immediately went out of orbit. And uh, in January of nineteen seventy eight, it crashed in Canada. And now, thank, thank goodness, it happened in northern Canada. Uh, it had a fifteen thousand square mile debris path. Uh, left debris all over the place. Uh, DIA, uh, in working with the Canadians and, and also bringing another Department of Defense efforts, worked, went up, worked with the Canadians um, in an operation... Called uh, Operation Morning Light in minus 60 degree weather. 60 degree weather. Dia analysts as well as well as others uh, in the intelligence community and the can- and the Canadians went up. We used a C-141, a KC-135 aircraft. We used U-2s to photograph the area and try and find out what was going. on. We were able to actually identify hundreds of pieces of the satellite. Well, of course, now you can actually run run tests on them. You don't really need to run a lot of tests to find out how how, how radioactive these pieces are, but you're able to do that. But then also what you're able to do is you're able to go back and essentially help re-engineer and rebuild their satellite. And, And that, too, helps you say, where are they at? What agreements are they breaking? What capabilities do they do they have and we actually used that we we painted a graphic representation of this that we put out in one of our unclassified books that we might get to in a few minutes called Soviet military power where we were able to then show not just our senior policymakers what the Soviets were doing, but the entire world right. what they what they were doing. And they did it again and again and again. So when we you know when we went to the arms control table so many times one of the great things is we DIA was able to help ensure that our senior policymakers knew that when the Soviet Union signed an agreement and said, we're going to live up to it and here's the terms of agreements and everything, they always had to take it with a grain of salt. They had to get everything in writing down to specific details because the Soviets were going to try to find any means or measures necessary to be able to improve their capability um, to get an advantage over us. Right.
0: Well, you, you did hint at our, our nice segue to uh, the next topic. Um, I remember actually when I was a kid growing up, um, I stumbled onto a, what looked like a very cool like thick magazine um, at my friend's house whose father worked for a particular agency. Um, even if he had any, he may have had this anyway, but it was neat and it had a bunch of cool look like paintings of fighter planes and submarines and ships and... Uh, I was old enough at the time to kind of understand what was going on. It was the Soviet Military Power 1988 book, which I still own today. Um, You know, Back from when it came out in 1988, it's a little rougher than it should be uh, because I read it one too many times. But this, I've come to find out there was one basically every year. Uh, And so between then and now, I've been collecting as many of them as I possibly can. And And these always kind of made me wonder, like, are we giving away too much information here? Like, this is telling everybody what we know. There's a really cool story about how DIA was able to kind of walk that thin line between showing the world what we knew without really giving away the sources and methods, right? Kind of the fancy, the terms we always throw around and what needs to be protected, but at the same time saying, hey, we, we know what this stuff does.
1: Right uh yeah Soviet military power is great and it goes to to a theme that we kind of talked about the last time as well which is DI came had a really tough beginning. We we, we, didn't, we didn't have a nice start in 1961. It took a while for us to develop our capabilities. During the 60s, we were really looked down upon. During the 70s, we start really improving our capabilities in terms of collection, um, the number of missions that we have to take over for the intelligence community, the number of assets that we're able to start utilizing, the number of analysts, everything in the 1970s starts to improve so that when you talk about by the late 1970s, uh, DIA is really on the ball in terms of understanding our adversaries, particularly, again, the Soviet Union. And in the late 1970s we were seeing a enormous escalation of capability in Soviet military forces. They were building, you know, instead of one class of new submarine, they were building three new classes of submarines. Instead of one new fighter, they were developing four new fighter systems and then they were procuring large numbers of them and the 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 sheer volume of Soviet military capability that was that was coming uh, to fruition in the late 1970s had us really, really concerned. So we developed a very highly classified briefing that we took around, and we just briefed everybody who we could brief who was clear for this about what was happening. And it stunned a lot of people because, you know, detente in the ni- you know 1970s, early 1970s, things were supposed to be going well, and here we have the Soviet Union who is clearly developing um, far more advanced capabilities. And again, even, even like I said earlier, doing things that suggested information that we had suggested they actually were thinking about how they could actually win a nuclear war. So we were doing this really super classified briefing, taking it all around. Um, it was really lauded by everybody and we go and we brief um, a number of senators and, and when, when we're done briefing, Senator Ted Kennedy pulls us aside pulls pulls our director aside and he says, Look, you've got to find a way to be able to provide this information to the American public and to a much wider audience because People just aren't getting how bad, how bad this is. It's one thing to tell us at a classified level what's happening, but then we've got to go back to our taxpayers and try and sell them on the fact that we're going to increase defense spending substantially, which, of course, actually happens in the 1980s. So you've got to find a way to get this information out there. Well, at roughly the same time, we also briefed uh, some NATO partners, and the minister, one, of the, one of the senior ministers in NATO said essentially the same thing. Like, you're telling us as NATO we need to increase and bolster our capabilities. We have our own taxpayers here who are not real enthusiastic about increasing defense spending, and they're not seeing the type of information that you and I are seeing to say we really need to bolster it. So we have these two, these two our our partners, and then and then a, a senior senator telling us we have to really find a better way of, of providing the information. Casper um, Wein we, we 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 start taking that to ground, and then Casper Weinberger, the Secretary of Defense, also comes in and says we really need to escalate this. We need to get it out there because it's 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 that important. If we're going to try to maintain pace and let the American people know and the world know what's happening. So we decided to write uh, our first Soviet military power book. It came out in September of 1981, and the notion was to take nothing but classified information, verify—I mean, true information, nothing fabricated—from um, good sources that we could actually validate, and to create a unclassified book that everybody could see. Um, Well, what that means is you you, you take out the sources and methods, right? That's the first thing in getting something declassified. A lot of the times, the information, information, it's not so much the information itself that's sensitive. It's how did you come to get it. So it's sources and methods. So we eliminate the sources and methods. And... We are able to then say, okay, now what are the things that are too sensitive? Like we can't even we can't even touch those things. So you pull those out, and what you come up with is still a fairly substantive picture of the Soviet military capability. Okay, we can tell the American people that they have three new classes of submarines coming out. Okay, well, now you do graphics, and we, we really did a good job of trying to show the graphics not only of the Soviet capabilities but ours, and what our per- procurement spending plan was and what their procurement spending plan was so that you could get that nature of just how bad it was. But there were some areas that we looked at that we said, um, we we just can't show this. We can't show the picture of the, the new Backfire bomber, Blackjack bomber, the new submarine, because we only have a couple pictures of it. And if we post the picture, it's going to reveal our source. Right. So, for instance, one of the things we have is we have a uh, beautiful... Um, painting, well I just kind of gave it away, but we have, we have a picture of a blackjack bomber, one of the advanced Soviet bombers at the time um, state of the art and in front of the aircraft are several generals, Russian gen- or Soviet generals, standing in front of it well if that, inf- if that picture got out anybody would anybody in the Soviet military would be able to say, okay what air base is that because you can see the background and oh that looks like General Asimov you know, what day was General Asimov at that field? Right. And by doing that now, you're going to reveal or potentially give away the person or the source who who took that picture. So we said, how can we show this new capability, this new bomber that they're developing, but not reveal the source? And so one of the things that we did, we had been using painting for a long time in DIA. Uh, whenever we might get a piece of information that says the Soviets are developing, you know, go back in time a little bit, the T-72 tank. And we don't have a picture of it, but the source can give us some information on it. He says, well, it's a little bigger than the, a little smaller than the T-64, a little bit more compact, a little bit more compressed turret. Uh, we have artists, then, who were painting It's like those. a sketch
0: artist when you get, you know, someone gets robbed or sees a crime. You it, kind of exactly, but doing yeah. it pretty, right? So right.
1: pretty paintings and everything. Uh, but we had painters who, whose entire job it was was to do this. And so we, when, when we were asked to put together Soviet military power, we had a a large number of people already essentially ready to go to be able to work against this. And now you take that picture of the Blackjack bomber with the generals in front of it, and you create a whole different background. So instead of it being in the plains in central Siberia, um, suddenly you put it near a coast. And you change the angle on the aircraft a little bit, and of course you're not going to paint the generals there. And now what you have is a... A near perfect replica painting of a blackjack bomber that has no way of being able to identify to anybody where we got that information from we put out the first series the first the first book in nineteen eighty one and huge press corps was there and it was it was a really big deal It immediately hit the streets and and people were horrified by what they found and, and the advances that that a lot of people didn't didn't realize um, year went by, we weren't really thinking about doing another one, but then as as the pressure came in to keep that up, congressional pressure from the Secretary of Defense's pressure, the public's pressure to say that's something that we as a public have a right to know, we need to be seeing this, and then from a congressional and, and, and administration standpoint, being able to use it to be able to justify defense spending, we then put one edition out every year until the end of the Soviet Union. We... Did it in eight different languages because one of the part, or you know, our partners wanted this as well. So you can find Soviet military power in Japanese. You can find it in Italian. You can find it in German and French, and you can find it in Russian. Uh, And one of the interesting things is uh, the Russians took. we, We gave it to the Russians brought it to the arms control agreement deals, and said, well, look, here's Soviet military power. And so when you say that you're not doing this, here's actual pictures of it, and here's actual information associated with it. So the Soviets took this. Now, some of Soviet leadership was so in the blind about their own defense, uh, their own military, because of classifications and stuff, that they used Soviet military power, Soviet leadership used Soviet military power, to understand and appreciate their own military. Right, So that became a principal source for for the Soviets to actually be able to use. And the other thing is they saw that it was so useful and it was such a powerful tool uh, that they put out their own Soviet military power, but it's it's the opposite. It's against us. It's called From from Whence the Peace. That makes the United States look evil. So right. you find all sorts of pictures in there about the B-1 bomber and the MX missile and all of these things where it's the United States who's actually driving all of the military capability. Now, you're going to ignore, you're not going to have... Uh, graphics in there that show that there's ten Soviet aircraft being procured for every one of ours, but you will see that the United States is developing a you know really super advanced f fifteen fighter jet, and so they actually mirrored mirrored right. what we were doing to put out something as well and and Soviet military power was such a success then that when the Soviet Union ended, you know we ended it because we didn't have a Soviet Union to go against anymore, but we have now reinitiated. Um, the series because of the nature of where we're at in the world right now. DI just put out a Russian military power with the same general kind of look and feel as the Soviet military power with the intent of, of being able to do the same thing that we did in the 1980s, which is to, which is to let people know that the, the threat still is there. It hasn't gone away. We are still at risk from powerful nations out there um, who have real, real advanced capabilities? Well, those are
0: limited runs, right? I mean, there, is there going to be a much broader publication moving forward? Because the, I think people probably want to try to get their hands on that. And
1: we're not going to produce as you know. We're, so, so, when Soviet military power came out, there was one year we produced as uh, over four hundred thousand copies of it. I mean, these, some of these were at books; you could get them through through a lot of different venues. Um, we po- it's it's online. You can get it through uh, the public, the the government printing service. Um, we are not producing the large quantities of actual hard copies now because we just find that most people are more apt to use the Internet and, yeah. and use it as a source there anyway. Um, but it's, it's an extremely useful product uh, uh, for people to be able, again, to get a grasp on the fact that um, we we are still in a dangerous world. And so the notion that, that uh, because there's not a Soviet Union, there isn't um, um, advanced capabilities out there that could threaten the United States – uh, is is a dangerous right. is a dangerous thing. So let me
0: let's wrap this up by, by looking at um, I think a misconception that uh, the entirety of the intelligence community missed the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, not pointing any fingers at any certain agencies out there, um, but it's been conventional wisdom that we were caught complete completely surprised by the Soviet Union falling apart uh, in 1991, you know, certainly no agency picked the day or the exact month. Uh, but DIA got closer than some, uh, talk a a little bit about the ways that DIA was able to predict some of this, this collapse, uh, and how close do you guys actually get.
1: Let me talk about the, 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 what we didn't get right, because that's first, because that, that, that I think is pretty easy. Um, even even when I talk in a second about the things that we were able to provide senior policymakers to say that we think things are going really bad and that that, that something something significant is going to happen in the Soviet Union that may result in some really bad stuff. Um, the The real question in 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed, one of the really big issues was, will the hardliners allow, uh, the Soviet Union to collapse, and es- essentially, you know, you've had several years under Gorbachev. He's tried to change the economy and make it a little bit more flexible, and all. Are the hardliners going to come in and actually say, uh, "Gorbachev, you're out"? We're going to go back to hardline policies. We're going to introduce very strict measures inside the Soviet Union. Um, we're going to get the protesters off the street because by 1991, of course, there's protests all over the right. Soviet Union. Um, whether or not they're going to divert back to some of their hardline hardline policies, that's the thing that DIA gets wrong, um, was the fact that we said, we we predicted that 1991 something significant, something very major was going to happen. Um, our assessment, though, was based on historic precedents, where the Soviet Union had never allowed, um, had, had, had not really allowed even its, its partners to do anything you remember Rema- or, yeah, I mean, Budapest in 56
0: and-, and 67 and in ni- 1980 in Poland mm-hmm. I mean you're looking at all the crackdowns yeah right
1: and so so we're looking at that and we're saying it's 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 unlikely that the Soviet Union is just going to roll over and die quietly and of course we we were right in so far as the hardliners tried to do that they tried a coup against Gorbachev and it, the coup failed. So we weren't entirely wrong there. We, we expected something to happen. We just thought that the coup would probably, if there was a coup, it would probably be successful. But what we were right in um, is, is is calling out the fact that the Soviet Union was veering toward a major issue or a major collapse or fall that was going to drive some sort of change. And that was uh, as early as 1985. And so in 1985, shortly after Gorbachev comes to power, um, we begin a process of working with CIA to do a series of economic studies for Congress, unclassified, so these are, these are actually unclassified assessments, uh, unclassified assessments on the Soviet economy. And this, this goes into a whole bunch of different things. So we were looking at the, the gross national product, and, and in the mid-1980s, the gross national product of the Soviet Union was the worst that it had been since World War II. We looked at agricultural and industrial uh, output, inflation, raw material costs, standard of living, commodity prices, consumer index, poverty, uh, deficit spending, and then of course the, gr- the guns versus butter debate of how much money was the Soviet Union putting into defense and how much were they putting into you know trying to keep people happy, right. and the the guns the guns part of it was taking up such a significant part of the economy that it was causing a, a lot of civil unrest as well. So you had civil unrest increasing. Um, at a time that the economy was also going down, but the Soviets were, were as I've talked about almost this entire time, trying to drastically increase defense spending. So in 1985, uh, we began we began that series. Uh, and it, it, In 1986, the second one, for instance, is called The Soviet Economy Under a New Soviet Leader. And we start talking about growth being less than 1%, and the difficulties and the struggles that Gorbachev was having in trying to trying to stabilize the economy and have it grow at the same time that he was trying to essentially rebuild or completely redo the way that the Soviet Union had been doing economics since, since its inception. And so we tracked for a couple of years that all efforts were failing. And what's more, not only were they failing, things were getting significantly worse. So in, 19, you know, in 1989, for instance, the, Soviet, the Soviets' own accounts were that 43 million people were living in poverty. And the natural thing there is, well, the Soviet Union lies about everything like that. We can, we know that they lie about everything like that. So if they're saying forty-three million living in poverty, it's actually substantially higher. We have all sorts of indexes and everything about how bad things are going. And you know, you start having eighty-seven, eighty-eight. We start, we start saying, uh, unless drastic changes are made, unless they are able to rebound and recoup some of the areas where they're where they're failing at. Something bad, something really bad, is going to happen, and we started tracking that more and more. So that by the time you get to eighty nine, uh, we're saying in the next couple of years, truly, if a major shift doesn't happen, the Soviet economy is going to collapse. Now, we didn't say the Soviet Union is going to collapse. That's like I said, that issue of, well, the Soviet economy may may collapse, but hardliners may be able to take over and at least you know keep a national identity. But we were saying at that period of time that we were looking at at the fact that unless something Dramatic, and I'm talking a wholesale change in the way that they were doing right. things, happens that the Soviet economy is going to collapse. And that as a result of that collapse, you could not have a population who was as disgruntled as they were, who were starving. Though, by the way, the only economic indicator that remained stable during this period of time and actually improved was alcohol. So, you know, you can't have a population who's that disgruntled with the economy going down, with so much money being spent on defense, um be able to get out of that and have an economy collapse without having a major, major crisis. So we predicted uh, in this, this too giving, giving, uh, you know, kudos to, to the CIA and working with us on this, but the two, we, we led the effort with CIA supporting. And so, you know, we were able to tell senior policymakers and warn well in advance that, you know, when you were looking at the early 1990s, we were predicting that senior policymakers were going to have to deal with some sort of genuine significant crisis um, in the Soviet Union. And, of course, that, that happened. We, we got the coup wrong. Uh, we thought the coup, like I said, would be successful. But we got the general principle of the fact that the Soviet Union was going to suffer something very significant. We got that call right.
0: You were rewarded for your prediction by uh, dealing with debates in the United States about completely annihilating your budget and maybe even canceling DIA holistically. So I don't want to get too far into the post-Cold War era because I want to not kind of half-ass it. I want to save it for future times where we can specifically talk about different things. Um, But I I am interested in, in, in talking about just the direct period, after the end of the Cold War and the debates. So the I mean, CIA went through this also. you got, like, yeah. Daniel Patrick Moynihan saying, we don't need one anymore. I mean, was DIA yeah. so, within that same debate? Was the peace dividend, which everyone liked to throw around, focused on conventional military, you know, capabilities, hit the intelligence community incredibly hard? How much was DIA pulled down by the
1: end of the Cold War. Yeah, so there, there were debates about whether or not to just eliminate DI altogether. I mean, DI is an agency that was created, found, made its bread and butter on the defense threat principally of the Soviet Union, right? So we did military stuff all over the world and there's all sorts of success stories about that. But ultimately, you know, the the... A lot of even the contingency operations were as a result of the Soviet Union and what they were doing abroad. And now the Soviet Union's gone, so everybody's going to go to bed at night and be happy, and there's going to be peace and happiness and love and joy, and we don't, need, we don't really need to have um, the Defense Intelligence Agency and or other agencies out there at nearly the rate of what they're doing right now, so there's going to be significant cuts. And so we managed to not get the, the, the axe, and, and there were enough people out there who realized, like, well, okay, so what does a post-Soviet Union look like? All these post-Soviet, you know, country, or all the all the breakup of the Soviet Union. What's going to happen in all of those areas? Um, drugs, you know, drugs haven't gone away. There are still some things out there. Uh, but we took we took enormous budget cuts, and we had to do some really significant internal um, reorganizations uh, to rethink about what we were doing and aligning against what what threats were still out there, and so on. It was a very very difficult time for the agency to go through. Um, and, of course, without speaking too much, you know, about future things, of course, the interesting thing that happens during the 90s is that even though there's no Soviet Union, the United States deploys its military forces more than any decade Um other than 1940, before you know, b- before the 1990s. Right. So you know, you've got provide hope, Southern Watch, restore hope, deny flight, prom- uh, uh, provide promise, uphold democracy, joint endeavor, guardian assistance, guardian retrieval, joint guard, joint forge, shining uh, presence, joint guardian, noble anvil. You had all these operations yeah. in the 1990s where the U.S. is sending large military forces over, and the military intelligence requirements for all of those. Um, don't go away. Right. You know, you're still you still have to know the adversary. You still have to know the health environment. You still need to know all all of those things. So it was it was a bit of it was a bit of an irony that at the same time that we were facing so many budget cuts, our our requirements um, actually increased, and that that provided some real challenge. For well,
0: us. I mean, you know, it's a dark period, right? The end of the Cold War and before the War on Terror begins is also the time when there's. I mean, I remember a lot of these names. You know, I remember chuckling at some of them, but uh, I was in some of these operations. <laughs> uh, so I forget that. I mean, you know, these are massive... Op- Restore Hope was huge. Joint Forge was the one that I was most heavily involved with in Bosnia. Um, you, you know, and this is a time... These are direct military operations. I mean, some of them are peacekeeping, peace enforcing. Some of them are, you know, Haitian relief. But it's still deploying the military to a place where the military brings guns because there may be some kind of a threat... Their lives, and that's where DIA kind of earns its money.
1: It, it is. I, I talked about this a little bit last time too. It's, it's, you know, it's interesting that um, in in the 19th, although so much effort was dedicated against the Soviet Union. We we were we were responsible. Di is responsible for providing support anytime, anywhere the U.S. military may have to to get involved in operations. Well, if you look at the tiers of countries that we were that the U.S. government was concerned about during the uh, you know at the end of the Soviet Union and and, and going through the early nineties and so on, you know you were still concerned about about Russia. You were still concerned about North Korea, and and all of the big highlight countries that you would expect to see are there nobody has any sense that it's going to be rwanda and haiti and right. somalia and bosnia um, that are going to be the countries zaire you know that are going to be the countries that that these these continue, that these operations are going to have have to have to we're going to have to be involved in uh, and there's dia ready to go uh, at a moment's notice to support many of these, we had we had done substantial intellig- foundational intelligence um, on on most of these areas so that when the time came that we suddenly said, you know, noble anvil, Albania. What are we going to do about that? That we that we were ready to go for Albania and we were ready to go for Somalia. And it, it the good thing about seeing something like this is uh, the fact that you. That people should be um, heartened by the fact that we are, we are able to go and be able to do I mean most of these are humanitarian operations. So we are doing really significant humanitarian efforts, but we have the ability to go and support operations wherever are needed because, because of the fact that we, were, we are looking at things that most people think I don't have any idea why you would ever want to look at some of these at some of these areas of the world, uh, and there we are we're able to provide that type of support.
0: We'd like to thank Hackable Podcast from McAfee. You can check out Hackable through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. So for more information on the role and history of the DIA, you can visit dia.mil. Um, and also for uh, if you're interested in the Russian military power, you can probably just Google it, uh, but it's probably available through uh, government uh, printing office printing website, office. Um, and that's more than likely where you're going to get it the online version of that. Um, this is going to be something that we're going to do consistently, uh, sitting down with DIA. It won't always be Greg uh, moving into the future. We'll bring some of the people actually currently working for DIA to talk about some specific topics, uh, whatever the topic, hot topic of the time is. Uh, we'll have a nice uh, declassified conversation. Uh, I love watching active-duty military types or analysts squirm when I ask a question thinking about what they can and can't say. So I'll have a lot of fun doing that, and hopefully you'll get something out of it. So Greg, again, he was the chief historian for Defense Intelligence Agency. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us again here on SpyCast. We look forward to having further conversations with you.
1: Always appreciate
0: it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.
1: Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Space Daily,